0: Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sobottom. Each week I'll bring you inspirational guests who help you bring fun, energy and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. This is episode number 175. Today, I'm joined by Tom Nemi from the Healthy Minds Program. Now, if you haven't come across Tom's work, you're in for an absolute treat. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was in Japan running a Learning Through Wellness weekend workshop, and one of the participants said, Dale, there is someone that you just need to learn from. He's very similar to your views, um, and the work he's doing is promoting, you know, well-being, happiness, uh, reducing mental health, and basically giving people resilience to live the sort of life that they want to. And uh, Tom has, is, has done that through his clinical psychology degree. Um, and then from there, he's a director and founder of the Healthy Minds program. And from that, he is now presented to over 25,000 students, adults, corporates around the world, which is stunning. And we talk about the impact that's had, as well as um, talking about the, the well-being wheel and the six factors that Tom has addressed that people need to really keep on top of in each and every day of their life. And we also mentioned his top selling book, Apples for the Mind, where you can get that, what the 20 steps are in that, that you know will help you flourish in each and every day. But one of the, the things I really got out of today's chat is just the importance of having fun, all right? And how important it is moving your body and having some form of fun, that form a release where you can get into flow, that mindfulness state every single day. So guys, there are so many takeaways from today's chat. One of them being that you are in for a treat because Tom is a champion. So, sit back, relax. This is episode number 175. Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. Tom and Emmy, how are you, buddy?
1: Yeah, really good, thanks, Dale.
0: Now, mate, we're just talking a little bit off air about, uh, it's obviously early in the morning for us both now and what we've been up to. Um, Do you have the same morning routine that you have every morning?
1: When I'm not traveling, I do. Um, My normal morning routine will be to get up pretty early uh, when my son gets up and then um, grab the, uh, the dog and head out for a brisk walk around the Adelaide Hills where I live. And that's a really good start to the day for me.
0: I love that, mate. I was just saying I, I did exactly the same thing with uh, my wife this morning. We got up, we walked our dog. And I think it's just a, a great way to set the day up. And I'm very similar to yourself doing a lot of travel. So how much do you appreciate that time when you uh, are at home and you get to have a little bit of a routine?
1: Oh, it's so important. I absolutely love it. And it, it's those little things that you do miss when you're on the road traveling a fair bit. Um, it just um, It just sets your head right for the day, fresh air, a bit of exercise. I'm a big fan of morning exercise, and um, oh, I, I do miss it when I'm, you know, on a plane from 6 a.m. and getting into a hotel really late. It's um, It does take a little bit out of you.
0: It, it definitely does, mate, and I think that for people that – Uh, I I get this quite a lot, and I'm sure you do too, that, oh, it must be amazing doing all this travel and going to these places, but it is quite strenuous and tough on your body. So um, personally, I'm interested in this. Do you have a a routine when you're traveling, or do you find it really hard because you're so out of whack, different time zones, um, you know, flying, not eating the same food, you're staying at hotels? Um, Do you have a routine, or do you find it really tough?
1: I I find it tough usually because the days are filled either with actually traveling, um, or working. There's not a lot of time either side. And that's why when I'm home that routine and those kind of everyday health and wellbeing routines are are so, so important because you you come back to your baseline then, um, when I'm traveling, oh, it's just, it's tricky. I think, um, if I can get a little bit of exercise, I will. But, again, there's got to be the time in the day for that. Um, I'll try to um, uh, get a good sleep wherever possible. Um, it's it's just one of those things where you got to make the best of wherever you are and whatever amount of time you have. Mm.
0: Yes, so true, and and as you said, it's all about finding that time, and it is quite tough when you're so stretched and you've got so much on. Um, I sometimes feel like a bit of a hypocrite. And for example, uh, recently I was in Japan, and that's where I got recommended about you because you were over there recently speaking as well. But here I am presenting on ways to improve your health, your well-being, your physical and emotional, and all this. And here I am absolutely tired, working massive hours, and I'm probably not practicing what I preach. Do you ever feel like an imposter when you know you're running your healthy Minds program, but you're probably travelling and, and doing the opposite for yourself.
1: Oh, absolutely. But I, I, I think that speaks to one of the keys to sustainable well-being practices. It's about um not being perfectionistic about it. Because if we are too rigid in the rules that we think we need to follow, then the moment we break a rule, it's easy to say, well, it's all buggered up, I'll forget it altogether. So having that flexibility means that if i have a few days where gee it hasn't been um as healthy as i would have liked, or i haven't gotten to do my exercise or whatever the case may be i actually let myself off the hook because then it, it removes a mental barrier to just getting back into the groove once i am home
0: yeah that, i think that's really important that uh you, you're not writing because we all do make mistakes we're all not going to be perfect all the time but how important is it you know that letting the past go and right, you can only concentrate on the future
1: yeah, yeah. And and it's just not being all or nothing. Uh, I think one of the things that people often do around their health is that they create very rigid rules, and they think in very black or white terms, they, they think all or nothing. And if I, I can't do it perfectly, it's not worth doing at all. Well, Whereas that's actually a barrier to sustaining health behaviour. So um, my recommendation uh, to anyone who's in that position of travelling and routines that mix up all the time is to actually treat yourself kindly and, and be willing to be flexible.
0: That's mm, so nice. And I think particularly we know the benefits of kindness and uh, more often than not we're kind to other people but um, how hard is it to be kind to ourselves and I think that's a really good point that you've just mentioned there Tom that um, you, you can't really give kindness to other people unless you love yourself and you be kind to yourself so I love that point mate now let's get back to obviously Tom growing up mate what's your background before starting Healthy Minds?
1: Well, I grew up in Adelaide and uh, with with two brothers. I'm a triplet, actually, so two a brothers triplet. the same age. Yeah, wow, which what was, was that um, like? Oh, I don't know any different, Dale, so <laughs> it's hard to say, but I, I think we had um, probably uh, a similar kind of relationship that um, uh, other brothers would have, but it was just that we were going through the same year at school at the same time, had a bit of overlap in our friends. And then there were pros and cons to it. You kind of always had someone to... Possibly hang out with or kick the footy with, um, but also you kind of maybe felt like you um, could get in each other's hair a bit at the same time. But it was that it was it was good growing up in Adelaide uh, with my family, um, and then really my uh, sole focus from early adolescence was that I wanted to be a racing car driver, and that really just um, just drove me one hundred percent. That was completely my focus. Um, And after a few years of competing at an amateur level in in sprint kart racing and testing some Formula Fords, I realised that I was unlikely to get the sponsorship and money that I needed if I was going to do that for a job. But um, uh, so my plan B was to go to uni and study psychology. So
0: that's that's fascinating. I've obviously done a little bit of research on you, mate, but I didn't know about the uh, racing car. What what was that? What's the feeling like when you're behind the wheel uh, when you're racing? What, What's going through your body and mind then?
1: It, it's a bizarre thing to say, but it's one of the few activities that I've done in my life that I felt i was naturally suited to um i felt very at home in a racing car and it the the physical sensations particularly when you get to high speed the thing that you notice the most in an open-wheel race car is is the aerodynamics so it literally feels like your helmet is being sucked off your head um, because of the airflow over the car and um i guess the other different thing is the g forces under braking people often assume that it's when you accelerate that you really Feel the strongest forces in a race car it's actually under brakes um and so it's a different kind of sensation than what many people expect but um no i i absolutely loved it but it's unfortunately something that takes a lot of money and at you know 16 years of age i didn't have that
0: yeah and it it is a very expensive sport and and, then it's well documented um but to be a race car driver, you have to be seriously fit, don't you? So, what we, as a sixteen-year-old, obviously, um, you're quite naturally fit at that age. But what was, what was some of the extra fitness or um, conditioning you were doing to your body, Tom, to you know, be able to concentrate for that long? And, and because it's such a fatal sport, mate, if you have a lapse for a second, it could be fatal.
1: Yeah, I, I'd, I'd run. Um, I'd, I'd some. I I'd went through phases of gym routines um i was juggling this all around school though so it was um it, it was sort of that matter of balance again um when i left school and i had a year off after high school to try to find a sponsor and pursue my dream then i was in the in the gym pretty much every day um, it's funny though when i realized that motorsport was not likely to work out for me i needed somewhere to channel that energy, that, that physical energy, but also kind of that, that that focus and determination. And that was when I took up karate and I just started training three times a week in, in karate. And um, that that was kind of my savior because I don't know what I would have done with myself if I didn't have that outlet.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point that you've made there, that not only an outlet for yourself, but um, it's probably, that's the most mindful spot you'll be. You know, when you're racing that car, you're so present, you're not thinking about anything else. And I suppose when you remove that from your life, you need to be able to replace that with something. in it sounds like karate has done that. And when you can mix the, the positive movement of your body, the training, um, also the socializing, I suppose, with karate and so forth like that, but then also the mindfulness, you're so present. How important is that in your life? For for people out there, how important is it, Tom, to have something like that that they can just focus solely on um, and also move their body while they're doing it?
1: It's really important. It's such an important thing for us psychologically. Um, Often these things, we think of them as physical activities because you're you're doing with your body, but they very much have psychological benefits. So in psychology, we sometimes call it a flow state when someone is completely absorbed by the task at hand, such that they lose track of time. They're not aware of anything else around them um, and they're just completely in the the moment, as you say. So for me, being in a racing car, you're absolutely right. You have to be fully present, focused on the task. And there are a lot of similarities with martial arts because it's also about um, being focused, being ready to react extremely quickly. Speed of reaction is important for both racing drivers and martial artists. Um, You need to have that single mind focus and be completely aware in the moment. Otherwise, you're vulnerable. And it also, both of those activities really required a willingness to feel uncomfortable. Um, You know, both of those activities put you in in a place where you're battling that natural instinct to keep yourself safe. You're willingly putting yourself potentially into harm's way. And I love that threshold of how far can I push myself and how much can I accept this level of discomfort and and still perform well, um, and I suppose by extension, if you then look at um, being a professional speaker, uh, <laughs> there's some similarities there as well.
0: Yeah, that's that, that is really true, and um, I I don't know if you often get this, but people just assume when I go and do a gig or a keynote or something like that that. I'm confident and that it's going to come naturally. But it's probably the same feeling as when I used to go out to bat in cricket or to play AFL that I was deep down so nervous and so anxious. But I guess once you start, it just sort of starts flowing. And I think that's probably the same as race cars, karate, anything like that, that you sort of ride on that edge of the threshold of comfort, but then also danger.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and when I talk to young people in, in schools and and even in our corporate audiences, I, I try to impart uh, a, a core message, which is that we're not actually aiming to feel perfectly calm. And I think this is something that even many psychologists kind of, uh, if I might say, don't get quite right, is that they see being calm as kind of the end point or a, or a healthy state that we're aiming for. I disagree with that. I think that what opens us up to be successful and to develop and grow personally is that we're willing to experience discomfort. And so when you are doing uh, a workshop or something, Dale, I assume you're a bit like me, you'll have some days where um, you're, you're feeling you know, relatively relaxed going into it. And you'll have other days where you absolutely feel the nerves and the pressure and you're sitting in that space of being uncomfortable, not in a bad way. It just means that we're, we're pushing ourselves.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I, – I often think about this a lot. I don't talk about it a lot, Tom, but I get quite anxious before speeches and um, talks and, and probably on the aeroplane two places. I That's all I can think about, and it's till I start that I know, oh, Dave, you've actually got this, you're fine. Um, yeah. But then also it's about I need to keep doing this to push myself. And how important is that for people listening that – to have those things in their life that do scare I and mean, talk. I'm sure you're the same, mate. That you'll be doing some gigs and you'll walk in there and you're like, oh, I, feel like an imposter. I, I don't know if I can do this. But then once you start, you're fine. But for everybody else listening, that may not be a speaker. How important is it for them, you know, to push themselves outside that comfort zone to then feel the, I don't know, the satisfaction or the elation that you get when you know that you can do it and you overcome those fears.
1: Well, that willingness to step into the nervousness or the the discomfort is the single biggest key to anybody's personal growth. Um, It's the most important thing. If if anyone who wants to expand their capability, it's a prerequisite that we're willing to step into that state. Um, For people who see calm as the objective, Or they find those physiological sensations of nervousness to be very aversive. So some people, when their heart rate goes up or they get the sweaty palms, they get the butterflies in the tummy, some people interpret that as a sign of danger or they they want to get rid of that feeling straight away. If we have that mindset that we're not willing to step into that space of really being pushed and tested, then it shuts down our growth because Any time, by definition, any time that you take on something difficult or more responsible or new, you will feel uncomfortable because by definition it's not familiar and it's not safe and it's not what you're used to. So the the key thing that people will notice, though, if they have the courage to sit with that discomfort, is that we know they will calm down. This is a, a process that's sometimes referred to as habituation, It's a getting used to, it's uh, in therapy, psychologists call it exposure therapy, literally getting someone to sit with the discomfort of the thing they're trying to face or overcome. And we know that the human body cannot sustain an adrenal response indefinitely. So if, you're, if your heart rate's going really fast and you're getting those nerves and you're stepping up to the microphone or walking onto the cricket field, if you've got all of those sensations in your body, you just need to know that if you accept it and you keep going, that they will start to dissipate. And I'm sure you would notice this, Dale, if you're running a workshop and you have those nerves and you have some of those thoughts, but about 20 minutes in, you're going to be feeling significantly better than before you stepped up to the microphone.
0: Yeah, and it, and it is so true. And what I realize now, and I look through the audience, that they're probably scared to be there as well. You know, they don't know what I'm going to do. And, and mate, sometimes I do some crazy things and I'm sure um, that scares them as well. But um, you're right. Once you start, you feel amazing and you get that amazing feeling inside. But one thing I find is that um, people are scared to fail these days Tom you know and, and being judged uh, particularly on social media people are very quick to throw you down or shoot you down um, it's a tall poppy syndrome do you do you find that people are happy not to you know feel the highs and lows that we might get by pushing ourselves or doing speed gigs or, or going in the racing car karate or or whatever because they are scared to fail and what people will say about them
1: yeah for, for a subset of people they are driven very much by others perception of them or Perhaps most often, it's their judgments about themselves. Um, in our research, in, in developing our, our prevention program and wellbeing program, the biggest risk factor that we came across that was a risk factor for poor mental health generally was something called unhelpful perfectionism. And it's when people um, either set very high standards for themselves or they will only stick to the things that feel safe and comfortable and familiar because they will judge themselves harshly if they don't do it perfectly. So anytime we, someone takes on a difficult task, there's the risk that they'll fail. There's, there's uncertainty, how's it gonna turn out? We don't know. Um, and so for the person who judges themselves very harshly if they make a mistake or if they have a bad day or if the, their presentation doesn't go so well, then that is so aversive to them that um, they take this mindset that's very, very narrow. And I imagine for somebody like that, it would be a difficult thing to, yeah, perhaps that maybe that is where some of the tall poppy stuff comes from is that to see someone who has the courage to uh, embrace uncertainty and take risks, uh, that's going to be a, a, a real contrast to that safety seeking mechanism in the person who just wants to stay in that, that comfort zone.
0: Mm, and I suppose it, what it really comes down, is probably really confronting for them because deep down they're a little bit envious. I would like to be doing that, but, um, you know, it's, it's easy to sit back because it, you know, it is, it's probably too hard for them to actually do Tom.
1: Yeah. I reckon you're right.
0: Yeah. Um, now mate, let's talk about your healthy minds program. So, um, after racing cars, you know, didn't work out for you, you became a clinical psychologist. Um, From there, what made you or how did Healthy Minds come about? What was the thought process behind it?
1: It came about very naturally from observations that I made as a clinical psychologist. So uh, I had, um, you know, I worked in many settings, but eventually ended up in private practice working with people of all ages. So I'd sometimes be working with little kids, sometimes adolescents and uh, adults as well. But I realised that there are really a core set of psychological skills and a core set of concepts that everybody needs to know if they're gonna manage their own mental health really well and if they're going to sustain high levels of mental health. And really my objective for all of my clients was that I wanted to give them that toolkit so that uh, you know that they, they wouldn't relapse and, and come back now on one hand that's not a good business model you're kind of trying to make yourself redundant but um, uh, it, it philosophically that's where I was coming from. I wanted them to be capable of managing their own mental health well. but it occurred to me that generally when people arrived and they sat down on my therapists couch, they just, didn't know these skills. They had almost no awareness of what these psychological skills were. And they even had often little to no awareness of what mental health really is, what what good mental health really looks like. There's a lot of myths and misconceptions about that. So I would go through this routine of having this this core set of skills I would want to teach everyone. But I I realised that unless they were to show up and spend time one-on-one with a psychologist, they were unlikely to get to learn those skills in any other context of their life. Now, there are many people out there who will never sit on the psychologist's couch. Uh, So how do we get that good knowledge out of the therapy room and into schools and into workplaces? And if we taught people these skills, not in a therapeutic way once a problem has occurred, but if we taught them these skills in a routine way, a skills building way, Could we create psychological immunisation? Could we create a a non-drug immunisation against things like anxiety and depression and possibly eating disorders? And that then kind of became my personal mission, especially when I saw some people close to me struggling and I realised that those, those episodes of ill health probably could have been prevented. And that was really what led me to embark on my research at Flinders University.
0: I think that's really nice, mate, that, you know, we do see it around us and mental health is on the rise. And I'm a believer that that's because we are talking more about it and people aren't just pushing it aside and getting on with it. Now, um, you've presented to over 25,000 people with your programs and everything and workshops and talks. What are you most proud of so far from what you've been able to
1: achieve? I'm most proud of the impact that we have. And that, that comes about through... Uh, When I wind up our term long program in a school and, uh, you know, I'll just have have kids coming up to me wanting to shake my hand and say, you know, you you can tell when, uh, you know, adolescents don't usually put it on for someone just because. No, they don't. Uh, And so, (laughs) you know, when they come up and and say, look, I really want to say thank you so much for teaching me all these things. It's really going to help me. Uh, That's a huge buzz. Um, we also always evaluate our, our workshops and in particular all of our corporate workshops where we teach precisely the same skills to adults. And we collate these uh, anonymous feedback forms. They don't write their name anywhere on it. So they could tell us to go jump in the lake if they wanted to. And yet we get some, um, we get some amazing comments from people. And, um, you know, when we ask them, you know, would you recommend this training? Um, over 97% of our participants say yes, they would, and that's wow. over many, many thousands of people. So that's really what, what gives me a buzz. It's knowing that people are going to go away and apply this. Um, and, and from time to time, I have people contact me and say, look, um, you know, I did some training with you on this date and this is what's happened in my life in the last six months and I've handled it vastly differently than I would have and it really helped. So that's really what, what excites me.
0: Oh, mate, and, and that is amazing. It's a credit to what you've been able to achieve. And obviously not everyone can get to one of your workshops or come to one of your courses, but that is where you have written this amazing book, Apples for the Mind, mate. Do you want to talk about that? Because i can guarantee, Tom, people are listening right now going, um, 97%, everything you're speaking about is spot on. Um, how can I get some of this in my life?
1: Well, the book was uh, exactly for that reason. It was about putting down on paper all of the key things that we teach in our workshops um, and uh, I, I on the back of the book in the, the blurb it says 20 tr- true things you need to know And I, that was as direct as I could possibly be to the reader that I think these are concepts that everybody needs to know in order to manage their own well-being now the flip side of managing your own well-being well is that you obtain high levels of mental health really good mental health. Now, many people don't think of it that way, that there is actually the possibility that we can have the psychological equivalent of being fit. And that's really, by extension, what Healthy Minds is all about. And the book Apples for the Mind is about summarising those key things, really, I guess, 20 key things that I reckon if everyone applied in their life, they would experience uh, you know, the overwhelming likelihood would be that they would experience good mental health and, and uh, high levels of well-being. So it's, it's teaching people um, some of these, these things in the toolkit, like realising that um, well-being is more important than happiness. And while happy feelings are good, uh, feelings are designed to come and go. And um, people often assume that their mood is the best indicator of their mental health. They think well, if I'm if I'm feeling happy, then surely that means that I'm I'm in a mentally healthy healthy place. Um, if I'm not feeling happy in this moment, then I'm not there yet. I, I, I'm not yet in a place of good mental health. And I think that's a big myth. I think it's completely incorrect. And so what I say to people is, you know, we could feel happy but do it in very unhealthy ways. Um, we might not feel happy because we're taking on a challenge and we've got responsibility and we're doing difficult things that are important. But just because we're not feeling happy on that day doesn't mean we're not well. And it doesn't mean that we don't have good mental health. So it's about some of those things we've discussed around being courageous rather than trying to be perfect and thinking about mental health in a really holistic way, that it's, it's not just about your mood. It's not just about your mind. um, It's, I present six key factors, actually, in the book, which I call the well-being wheel. And it's six things that I think a lot of your listeners can probably relate to. One is primary relationships, the health of your relationships with those around you. That's going to impact your mental health. Um, it's also about your biological needs like sleep and hydration and uh, you know managing health risks, diet. If If we don't look after our body, then it will eventually intrude on our psychological functioning. We give exercise a whole segment for itself. That's kind of the third factor because it's so influential in terms of uh, mood regulation and stress management. We give a whole segment to psychological skills. That's the fourth one. And that's really what I write about most in the book. Uh, And it's what we talk about most in our, our Healthy Minds program. And then we've got a segment that's about fun it's actually about having interests that go beyond our work uh, and having a social life because that's a fundamental human need um, but we often don't think of it as a priority and the final sixth segment is um, the big picture of our life which is what's my sense of meaning and purpose what gets me out of bed in the morning and keeps me going when things aren't uh, you know aren't going smoothly and that's a really non-stigmatizing way of thinking about me. 12th it's not about symptoms it's not about diagnoses it's about six factors that we can all influence for ourselves
0: yeah and i I think like so true the the one that really uh, i'm big I, i think all six are very important but i love the exercise component and like we just spoke about Um, Exercise Tom doesn't have to be, you know, going to a forty-five minute HIIT class or going to a spin class or going for an hour run. Like as simple as what we did this morning—get up and walk our um, dog—you know—is so powerful. And particularly do it in the morning; you've already had one win for the day, and then you continue on. But the one I love that you just mentioned there is fun, mate. How important is it to have fun? You know, enjoy life. Oh,
1: it's 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 vital. Um, And I think one of the hallmarks of when we're at risk for um, our mental health declining, is when we notice we're not having fun. Um, if, if, if anyone's listening and thinking, yeah, most of those factors are looking okay for me, but gee, I don't reckon I have much fun. When did I last Danger. laugh? When did I last muck around? And that's that's just a, a little red flag. It's just a little reminder to say, well, what can you do now? What could you schedule in that's going to bring some of that back into your life?
0: Yeah, and I think a great example of this is look at young primary school kids, and they often do play dates, you know. And I say to adults, set up a play date for yourself. And for example, if that's going to the driving range and whacking some balls, if that's knitting, sewing, it could be anything, it could be walking your dog. Set those play dates up because kids do it, it works well for them. But as adults, we grow older, Tom, and life takes over and it gets too serious. But we need to have that play and fun, don't we? And setting time aside is probably a really important thing to do
1: yeah it, it's it's absolutely vital. and and those things, you know I, I also refer to them as life medicines. they're they're the little things that discharge stress. They're the little things that um, help us to to feel brighter or more relaxed. But the interesting thing, Dale, is that when people's lives get busy and their stress levels start to increase, um now we know a little bit of stress is helpful, but when their stress levels get um, too high, they stop doing these little life medicines, these little things that inject fun or discharge stress. And that's how people get stuck in chronic stress.
0: That, that is, I love that life medicine, you know, and it's as simple as, you know, as I said, have some fun, have some play, do a little bit of movement, um, practice, just look around and look at things you're grateful for in your life. But as you said, when things aren't going well, that's the last thing you do, isn't it?
1: It, it, it is, we because we think uh, we think of these everyday things as less important than they are. So if I've got a big deadline or I've got a problem at work and I'm stressing about it and it's taking all my time and energy, I might have the thought, gee, I'd like to do that fun thing or I would normally do that enjoyable activity. But we think, oh, well, I could do that any day. Why? That's not as important as this big stressful thing. But that's the trap, is that in those moments – we need to regard those little de-stresses as if they were just as important as the deadline or the problem to solve because when people st- stop doing the things that mitigate stress then the stress just piles up and really that's at the heart of effective stress management many people miss that um, and so for me i i make sure that i've got life medicines booked in uh, one of my life medicines is, um, well, one is exercise, so that, that's another. I'll do some kettlebells or I'll get on my um, my boxing machine or, or walk the dog. But another is um, catching up with, with close friends. Like, that, like that's a life medicine, because I know that no matter what's going on in my life, if I catch up with one of my closest uh, good friends, I know I'll feel better after I see them. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, so we've just gotta remember that these things are actually accessible to us but it's up to us to proactively implement this. We can take charge of our well-being, rather than thinking of, of mental health and well-being as if it's something that happens to us and we hope that it's good and we hope it doesn't deteriorate. I think we need a pragmatic way of thinking about it, like the wellbeing wheel, where we can actually take stock and say, well, okay, where do I sit? What, what would I rate myself out of 10 on each of these six factors? and of the lowest rating, what could I do today that's gonna start to boost it?
0: Yeah, and I I love the analogy of the wheel, mate, because um, so if you've got the six factors and uh, there's five that are going really well, but one is just showing a zero, then that wheel's not going to work. And it's like life. If you don't have all aspects of uh, you know, those six areas going well, then you're not going to be flourishing or getting that flow or be the, you know, in that right mindset that you want to be. Now, I am aware of time and I know how busy you are, Tom. So I've just got a couple of questions to finish off with, mate. And if sure. you could look back to um, 18-year-old Tom, and so everything you've done now, all the workshops, Lots of speaking gigs, writing the books, car racing, everything like that. If you could give 18-year-old Tom one bit of advice, what would that be?
1: I'd say keep going. Um, no, we should never interpret a little setback as uh, meaning that um, the, the door's completely closed and uh, just to, to consider that everything's possible, you um, uh, and I, I feel like I've, I've lived my life that way, but I think um, it's something I would definitely reinforce to my 10 year old self and to any other young person um, is to look at the big picture. We, you know, we often underestimate what we can achieve over 10 years, um, but kind of expect everything to happen in the next six months. And that the outcome of the next six months is not the best indicator of um, your whole life. So um, I think looking at that big picture and keep taking risks, keep having a go. Because if we if we keep putting ourselves out there, um, it's, it's a numbers game on one hand. Eventually something's going to come off.
0: Yeah, consistency, mate. You just keep that repetition going. I, I love that. And legacy, when it's all said and done, Tom, I know you've got so many good years left in you, buddy, but what legacy do you want to leave on the world?
1: Uh, uh, one would be my son. I hope that he grows up to be um, uh, a, a kind and influential person who contributes to the world. And the other would be um, the legacy of my work. I hope that um, I hope that Apples for the Mind is a book that ends up on a lot of bookshelves and that for years to come, people read it and get something out of it and it improves their life. So um, if, if, if I can make that little mark uh, in the universe and if it, helps to put preventive psychology on the radar, this idea that we, can, we don't just have to tackle mental health with a firefighting mindset where we wait till the fire started and then we put it out. We can actually stop the fire from starting in the first place. And if I can shift the attitudes of, uh, of schools, of, of educators and of companies to, to start putting this kind of thinking um, front and centre in the decisions that they make, then I will be chuffed with that.
0: Yeah, and, and I think it is so true, particularly uh, with the horrific scenes we've had in Australia recently with the fires, you know, that, um, and sort of comes back to climate control and climate change and things like that, that we need to put things into place for our, our minds and our body and our health before we get to that fatal stage that, you know, the fires we've had and so forth like that, Tom. But last one I want to know, mate, life medicines, is uh, the Adelaide Crows a life medicine for you, or at the moment is that really sucking you down? <laughs>
1: <laughs> mate, I I love my footy and I love my footy club, so I'm I'm a diehard Crow supporter. <laughs> mate, I think um I I think we're gonna have a good year. I think we're, <laughs> a bit, we're a bit of a dark horse, but I think we're gonna have a good year, and I can't wait for the season to start. <laughs> I thought I'd uh,
0: put that one in there, mate. You'd like it, but uh, Tom, thank you so much for your time today, guys. And um I will have links in the show notes, uh, and you can go and check those out. HealthyMindsProgram.com, and on there you'll be able to get apples for the mind in the book Um, is there anything else like to mention for anyone where's the best place to contact you if people have really loved today's podcast and like to reach out and and, you know contact you and get more tom
1: yeah absolutely uh they can they can link in with me on linkedin they i'm on i'm on twitter not very active but i'm on there but the best way is to go to healthymindsprogram.com and if they want to get in touch with me personally it's just tom at healthymindsprogram.com
0: Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time today, mate. And uh, for your sake, I hope the life medicine of the crows go a little bit better than what they have been.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Dale.